Let me call us back. They're going to be messing with the mic here as we do this, and so you, that's going to be fluctuating. Uh, I'll just try to speak up um, until they do. But we're going to be back in Revelation chapter 2 today. We're making some progress. We're stepping forward. We're going to be stepping into the first of the seven letters to the church. So I, I want to keep something in front of you as we step into these. It, the, oftentimes when we come to these letters, it's maybe the most... Um, the most recognizable component of Revelation. We, we read them, it's very similar to the rest of the letters of the New Testament that we read. So John sets out to write what Jesus has said. But, but I don't want you to miss this. What I want you to be careful to see, and this will matter at the end of the sermon as well, what I want you to be careful to see today is as we step into it, we have not left the vision that John is having. So John has a vision of Jesus. It's spectacular. It's glorious. It's so amazing to him that he thinks the best thing he can do in response is fall flat on his face as if he's dead. Like he doesn't even want to move. He doesn't want to speak. He has this amazing vision. Jesus comes to him, touches him with his right hand, and says, fear not. And then, hey, by the way, write these things to the church. The vision isn't over just because we get through these letters. Further, as we're going to see as we get to the end of the, end of the sermon today, you're going to see how these letters aren't just connected back to that initial vision. They are pointing forward and preparing for the end promises, the promises Jesus makes at the end of Revelation. So what you end up having is Jesus coming in this vision, write this to the churches, and then these different visions along the way that all point toward the place where Jesus is saying, I'm pro I promise, I'm bringing my people to this place. And so they are, they are preparing us. They are encouraging us. We know the God who knows. We can hang on. We can patiently endure because we know him. So <clears throat> as we do this today, I just want, to, I want you to keep that in mind. And then further, this, this, we're going to take our time through these. I was originally thinking we would just kind of cover all of them or maybe half of them one week and uh, half of them the next week or do this all in one sermon because there's ways in which there's so many commonalities. We could hit them all. We could see the high points. But as we got through this, as I got into this, I thought, you know, realistically, we need to hear this. Um, there's, there, there's so many ways in which we measure church health today. Like as we think about and talk about what's a healthy church, what's a successful church, What's good in a church and what's bad in a church? I mean, we've got all kinds of ways of measuring that. There's, there, in, in the Baptist world, and maybe this goes beyond the Baptist world, but I know the Baptist world. In the Baptist world, we hear people talking about the three Bs. Baptisms, buildings, and budgets. No, let me, or, sorry. Well, it could be four Bs. Baptisms, building, and budgets, and butts. Right? Butts in the seat, size of your building, Size of your budget, number of baptisms you have, right? Those are the things. Those are the things that people look to. Those are the things that point, people point to. And if you have the right quotas or the right statistics that you can say alongside those things, that's what makes you a healthy church. And that's what makes you a successful church. Then there's the 80-20 rule. 80% of the, or 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, 20% of the people giving 80% of the money. And nobody wants to, wants to be that statistic. But over and over, churches prove out to be that statistic. People try to avoid that. There are people who have made their living, they made a life of calling out what's healthy, 
calling out what's not healthy, uh, defining healthy church, successful church, growing church, not growing church. They have made their lives off the, off the conversation or the teaching of what's good and what's bad about church. But it seems to me, and this is just my little view, I don't have a massive view, I just got one little view. It seems to me as I've read through those that those are often only ever identifying the organizational components of what healthy church looks like. They're looking at the organization of a church as if it's a business rather than looking at the church as a people who are actually a family who are under the headship of Christ. And so, so we need to hear this because out of all the voices that are out there, all the, all the perspectives that are out there, this voice, the one, the one Jesus speaking about who his church is and what his church, where his church is failing and where his church is succeeding, we need to hear his commendations of what's good in church. We need to hear the complaints he offers against these churches. They're real churches with real problems, but they're representing. What would Jesus say about our church? What, what would Jesus say about this church right now, in this time, in this place? What would Jesus say about us? What would his commendations to our church be? What would his complaints against our church be? What would he call us to? And what would he commit to as he calls us to it? So today, as we start, we're going to jump into the letter, the first letter to Ephesus. It's a church he calls to return to their first love. So beginning chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, <coughs> it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for you making yourself known to us, for, for revealing yourself to us, for giving us your Son, that he would live a sinless life, die a sacrificial death, raise in victory, and then continue to dwell with his people. How blessed are we, so grateful that we can now study His Word, Your Word, Your desire for Your church. So help us. Help us not sit in judgment and condemnation of these churches, but recognize, recognize our, our own failings, our own shortcomings. But also allow us, Father, to celebrate the good work You've done among us, the good fruit that You're producing in us and through us. That we can continue to look forward to the day that you return and bring us and give to us the, the inheritance that we so long for. Help us, I pray, as we sit and, and consider Jesus' words to his church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I just want to sum up, sum, sum up the letter to, to, at the very beginning, just to sum up the idea and then, and then kind of work through what Jesus says to this church. And here's, here's how I'd sum it up. Good works and good doctrine are necessary in the church, but not sufficient for the church. A word-centered church that lacks love will receive judgment, not reward. Good works and good doctrine are necessary in the church, but not sufficient for the church. A word-centered church that lacks love will receive judgment, not reward. And I hope as we sit here in this room, in a church that loves its doctrine, that points repeatedly to the word, that has a pastor that often says the word is the word, the word of God is the word that works, you won't miss that we need to be wary of this one. We need to be mindful of this one. The church in Ephesus had a rich history it, 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 in a very troubled city, right? Like it was not a great place for them to live. It wasn't a great set of circumstances for, the, for them to live in, but they had a, a very rich history. The church was likely planted by Paul and those like uh, Priscilla and Aquila who helped. We know of Apollos had been there that, that he knew of Jesus and he knew about him, but he only knew of John's baptism. And so Priscilla, and, and he was there, and Priscilla and Aquila come and, and, and correct and give him a, a, a better teaching. Um, Paul's there, spends many years there. The church's zeal for the gospel of Jesus would, would so affect the city that, that it influenced, it changed the financial makeup, the financial demographic of the, of the city, so much so that the silversmiths who were making silver shrines to the temple of, uh, of the temple of Artemis, that they were being affected financially, and so it starts a riot, and they end up in this, in this amphitheater or this coliseum or whatever that, that would seat 25,000 people calling out, Artemis is great, or something along that lines. You can, you can see that in Acts 19. But it was said of Ephesus that, that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek, in Acts 19.10. It, it, it was so profound, the influence of the church, that it didn't just affect Ephesus. It affected all of Asia. Paul would leave Timothy there to train up elders and deacons in the church. And eventually... History tells us that John becomes the bishop there, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, moves and lives there. Now, that's history. I don't know how accurate it is, but that's the, that's the tradition. Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in the late part of the first century, sometime after the 50s, and died early sometime before 150 in the second century, he writes this of the church in Ephesus. That the report that has reached him is of a church so well taught in the gospel that no unorthodox sect can gain a hearing among her members. A church which has taken seriously the warnings of Paul at the time of his last contact with her leaders. So Paul's been in Ephesus, spent years ministering in Ephesus, is about to leave Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, you, you, you can read about him saying to the elders, of the church of Ephesus. Watch out, wolves are going to rise up from within and they're going to come in and they're going to seek to de deceive and lead astray the sheep. So pay attention. Pay attention to yourselves and the, and the flock that God has for you here in Ephesus. And it seems they heeded this warning. It seems to be that that's what they came to be known for. But for all the church had going for it, 
They lived in a city that wasn't especially Christian, although it was especially religious. It was one of the most influential cities in all of the area, in all of the region. It sat at the intersection of three major trade routes, so people coming from all over, some by sea. It's, it's a place where, where, the, uh, <clears throat> where the port would, would, things that would come by sea would then be able to go across the land. And, and so there was all kinds of influences there. Politically, it would have ranked below Pergamum, uh, which is one of the cities that, one of the churches that received a, a letter, but it held great political influence. It was a center of emperor worship. So, so the Roman emperor was worshipped as a god in, in Ephesus. There was a the, the massive theater, I told you about that, that filled up with people, 25,000 people in this theater. I mean, you think about that. What, what's that? Look, it's, it's a football stadium of, of ours, right? Like, you think about what this city was, that it had this massive theater, and it's still, you can still go and see the, the ruins of it today. <clears throat> but probably the most prominent act of worship, or the most, cent- most central theme of worship, was the worship of Artemis. She was an idol, a, a pagan god, adored for her fertility. There's statues of her that have multiple breasts, and the, the reality is the temple that was built to her was so beloved that it was rebuilt. It was built, then rebuilt two more times because they, they loved and adored her. It was a haven for criminals. So if you cr- com- committed a crime in Ephesus and you wanted to avoid paying the consequence, you just go to the temple of Artemis and they would give you safe haven and they would not condemn you for your crime. Oh, it's no problem. Just come and be among us and join us. There was all kinds of sexual immorality associated with the worship of Artemis. But here Jesus is in his letter, not, not calling out the details of what's going on in Ephesus, right? Not calling out exactly what they're experiencing, but recognizing they live in a place that doesn't welcome them, recognizing that they live in a place that doesn't accept them, recognizing that they live in a place that's difficult simply to live because of who they are and what he, uh, because of who they are and because of, who he, because of who they are, because of who he is. And so he writes this letter. He, he, he has this letter written. And it says, it says as, it, as we jump right into it, it says, write this to, to the words, uh, uh, to the angel. Write this to the angel in Ephesus. And I, we, we touched on this last week. We're going to see this in every letter that Jesus addresses to the angel in the church of Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, those, those kind of things. And there's lots of discussion about this angel. There's lots of ideas about this angel. And, and some people think it's kind of the spirit of the church, the, the way in which we, each church has its own personality. Some people think that it's the pastor of the church. And though I'd love to think of myself an angel, I'm no angel, <laughs> right? Like, I'm no, I'm no angel. And, and, and honestly, I, I really think the best interpretation of this, because every other use of the word, in the, in the letter of Revelation, the book of Revelation, it refers to a heavenly being. Not a divine being, but a heavenly being. So somehow there's an interaction between Jesus in this heavenly realm that John is having a vision of, the angels that serve and, and, and worship him, but also serve the body of believers. There's some interaction between Jesus and this angel 
But we recognize, we know that Jesus didn't just mean for the angel to hear it because this is going to be read in all of these churches. But we know that the message for Ephesus isn't just for Ephesus because Ephesus' message is going to be read in Pergamum and Smyrna and all these other places. The, The intent is that everyone hear it. So Jesus comes and he says, send this to the angel so that the church hears it. Send send this to the angels so that my people know it. And, and, And we can see that clearly, especially as we come to the end of it, when he says, when he says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who's making this known wants everyone who has an ear to hear, to hear it and listen to it. This is prophetic language. This goes all the way back to Isaiah when, when Isaiah is told that, hey, you're going to preach and they're not going to listen. You're going to preach. They're going to be blind and deaf and not be able to understand it. It goes back to Jesus walking the face of the earth using parables to, to um, actually speak to his people, to those that would hear it, but keeping the message from those who were blind and deaf to it. In fact, he spoke in parables. He said purposely, so that his people would understand it, but that those who weren't wouldn't. And that's shocking to us. Because we're out there trying to just make it as simple and basic as possible, right? Like we, we think we're just supposed to be out there and give it to, give to everyone, make sure everybody hears, make sure everybody can understand, make sure everybody is just, just bring it down to the lowest of all low levels. And Jesus is saying, hey, this message at least, this, this message in particular is for those who can hear it, those who can listen and abide by it. So, so, so he's speaking to the angel. He's bringing it to the angel so that, so that the angel can make sure that his people get it. And then he identifies himself based on John's vision of him that we just studied in chapter 1. And this is why it matters. This, this, this is why we had to spend some time looking at that. We had to spend some time understanding that the idea is let's not just pick everything apart. Let's look at the glorious nature of it. But then he draws on that vision to introduce himself to the church as a foundational way of saying, this is why you need to listen. This is why you need to hear what I have to say to you. He says, I'm the one, I'm not, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hands, who walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus is the one who holds those seven angels, those seven stars. He's the one with authority. He's the one who... who, can speak. He's the one who has the right to say what he's about to say. And he's not speaking from a distance. He's not speaking from some place. I'm just an outsider looking in. He's the one walking among the lampstands. He's the one who's present with us. When he speaks what he has to say, he knows. He can see it. He's, he's watching it closely. He's with us in it. And he knows exactly what to say, exactly what to commend for us, and exactly what to complain against us. He's the one that can have the authority to say, hey, listen to me. Repent. And if you don't, I can bring judgment instead of reward. But I also have the authority to bring reward. Good works and good doctrine are necessary in the church, but they're not sufficient for the church. A word-centered church that lacks love will receive judgment, not reward. Imagine getting that from somebody that's never stepped a foot in this church. That has no authority over this church. Imagine hearing that there's a possibility that you're not going to get what you thought you were going to get. But it's just somebody that walked, walked by on the street. 
Who's going to listen to that? Why would we listen to that? But we have this. We, we, he gives this to us as the one who holds the stars. Who has authority to speak and who, who's able to bless. But who knows us well and who's with us. That's exactly what he wants Ephesus to hear. And they need to hear it. Because all they got going for them. Everything that they have going for them. He has something against them. We see this spelled out more specifically in his commendations for the church. Jesus' commendations for the church are this. First, good works. Look at it. Look at what he says. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know what you're about. I know what you do. I know what you stand for. I know what you endure. I know how you cling to the truth of my word. I know how you won't betray it. I know how you call each other to it. I know this. I see it. I've experienced it. I've watched it. Your toil, your, your hard work, your patient endurance. Immediately, what does that call into mind? You're patient, getting along easy, living on easy street. Everything's hunky-dory. You don't have any troubles. No. Endurance brings with it the implication of hardship. You don't have to endure things that are easy. Right? Oh, man. This is, I just got to endure kicking back in the hot tub, drinking my ties. Right? No, we don't endure that. We endure marathons. Well, I don't. Probably never will. People endure marathons. People endure hard times. It comes with that. He sees their good works. He sees their good doctrine. You hate evil. You know what's right and wrong. You know. You can spot it a mile away. You're not going to stand for any false teaching. In fact, there's apostles that have come as apostles saying, Hey, I'm an apostle, and you've heard their teaching, and you're able to call it out. You won't accept it. That's good doctrine. Like, and, they, and they come by that honestly. I mean, they had the likes of Paul and John, Priscilla and Aquila teaching and training them. They had Timothy left there by Paul to, to train and teach and raise up elders and, and train deacons. They had such an emphasis on good doctrine. It's no wonder that they were strong in doctrine. Such that anybody comes, preaches a, a, a different message. Ephesus was never going to be Galatia. They were never going to respond to the Judaizers the way Galatia did. Paul was never going to have to write a letter to Ephesus saying, You foolish Ephesians, who has bewitched you? Because their doctrine was sound. It was good. And they recognized the difference. And all of this, this good work, this good doctrine, came from a good excuse. Why did they do it? I know you are enduring patiently, verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Wow. This is why they're running around telling people, we, 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 will, we will take the ridicule. We will take the, the persecution. We will take the being an outcast. We will take whatever comes name of Jesus. We're going to stand for this doctrine in his name. We're going to do these things for the glory of Christ. 
They had a great excuse, not just a good excuse. He's the one that sets it before them. He's the one that set the example ahead of them. Well, it should be extremely shocking then that they, that they hear this next line. We got good doctrine. We got good works. We, we're doing it for a good reason. But then Jesus turns to his complaint against the church in Ephesus. Their lack of love. There's lots of people talking about what, what that is. He, he doesn't spell it out exactly. He doesn't give us detail. But I think, I think the broader teaching of Scripture can help us understand this. That there's a missing love for the Lord. I, I think in some way that Ephesus had become to love, had come to love knowledge more than the God who gave them knowledge. They came to love their doctrinal positions more than they loved the God behind the doctrinal positions. I think there's a problem with love for one another. And if you look, and we're going to see this in just a minute, those two are always intertwined. You want to love one another, it starts with loving the Lord. You want to express your love to the Lord, it starts with expressing your love to one another. But I think there's also a missing love for the lost, a love for those who aren't yet his, yet he knows will one day be his, and he sent us into the world to find them and make disciples of them so that they can join us in worship. I mean, there's so many passages of Scripture we could point to 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 kind of demonstrate these these three ideas, that there's a a loss of love for the Lord, a loss of love for one another, a loss of love for the lost. All the way back to, to, to Jeremiah, Israel uh, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.2, 2, go and proclaim. Calling Israel, right? Calling Israel. Not the church. This is Old Testament, Old Covenant language. This is an Old Covenant people that were supposed to be a light on a hill, right? They were a lampstand themselves. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Go tell Jerusalem, their, of their lost love. But tell these Israelites. There's the great commandment. When Jesus was tested, what's the greatest commandment? Love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Oh, let me give you a bonus. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do either without doing the other. And then Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Love your enemies. How in the world do we get that done if not for the love of the Lord? In his first letter to the church, John calls out how to love the Lord and the brother and shows how they're intertwined. John, 1 John 2, 9-10 through 10, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. You've actually never come out of the light or come into the light. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 1 John 3, 16-17, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This Jesus, Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What love did they lose? Love. God's love. A love for God. A love for God's people. A love for being a witness in the world. Standing more on doctrine and knowledge. Seeking position and power. And what's more, what's crazy about this is Ephesus at one time had been commended for their love. Paul, in his letter to to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, around verse 15. This is why I pray for you, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. Something had gone wrong. Something had happened. Something was amiss. They had all of this on their account. They had all of this stuff going for them. But they had lost their love. And this is why it's such a big deal. Paul, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What's shocking, I think, in all of this is that all of Jesus' commendations for this church, all of his compliments, all the good things he had to say about them, were undermined by this one reality. You don't love anybody anymore. Doctrine that can identify false teaching but doesn't produce loving people isn't good enough. Doctrinal teaching, it's, it's got to be informed by the Scripture. It's got to be, we've got to know what the Bible says. We can't ignore it. And this is what's beautiful is Jesus doesn't say throw this out. He doesn't say, hey, that's, that's bad. You've got to lean into love and forget doctrine. But if your doctrinal understanding, if your doctrinal wisdom, if your doctrinal standing doesn't include a doctrine of the love of God, it's failing you. It will not be enough. And I would just go so far as to say it's not really good doctrine. So all those angry people out there, all those people who would see it and condemn it, it's another thing I think we ought to point out about these letters. You know what Jesus doesn't do between these seven churches? Call them to look at all the other churches. Call them to count one another's problems and not their own. Hey, make sure that pastor knows he's not doing what I think he should be doing. Hey, here's that church's problem over there. They're too charismatic. They're not charismatic enough. They're too word-centered. They're not word-centered enough. They sing only psalms. They don't sing enough psalms. These people don't sing any psalms. They have drama in their church. What business is that of yours? What business is that of mine? I got an opinion about it. I got a strong opinion about it. 
But I got a, an opinion, a strong opinion, about all these people sitting out there pointing fingers at all these other churches in judgment and condemnation instead of looking at themselves and looking at their own church. Jesus never once, as far as I can tell in this, tells these churches to police one another. He tells them to be concerned about the issues in their church. There's lots of people out there today, right? You, 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 you may be listening to their podcasts. You may be listening to your YouTube channels. Heck, you may even be supporting some financially. And I know, I, I already know, I'm already stepping into a place that I'm, I'm potentially pointing fingers at those people out there. I get, I, I get what I'm doing here. I understand but I'm calling all of us. I'm seeking to, for all of us to hear this. We don't need the rest of the world telling us what's wrong with our church or what's good in our church. Our Lord and Savior has commended these churches, and we can see those. He has offered complaint against these churches, and we can see those. You don't need a talking head to do that for you. And I think one of the lessons he'd have us learn here is that doctrine that can identify false teaching but doesn't produce loving people isn't really good doctrine. It's certainly not good enough doctrine. Good works, doing all these good works, patient endurance for all the good reasons, always saying, oh, it's in Jesus' name. You know who else did things like that? Pharisees. They weren't using Jesus' name because they didn't believe in Jesus. But they were saying they were doing it in, in and under the authority of God and the law. And in, in, in step with Moses. You ever thought about why Jesus said what he said to the Pharisees? Like in Matthew 23, 23, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint, and deal in cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. You should have tithed on the mint deal and cumin. You should have been giving out of that provision without neglecting the others. How about the parable of the two sons? We call it the parable of the prodigal son. And I, I, I learned a, a book I read by Tim Keller years ago. I, won't, uh, I don't like that name for it anymore because the word prodigal, we're, we're changing the meaning of it. But he's got this, this man has two sons and one comes and says, Hey, Dad, give me all my inheritance. And he goes and he wastes it. He blows it on parties and prostitutes. He comes scraping back, just hoping to be a servant in his father's house. And then, and then the father runs out to meet him and greet him. And, and oh man, we love that part of the story. The, the father is watching a ways off. And, and, and this wayward son returns. And the father goes out and meets him and hugs him, puts a cloak on his back, a ring on his finger, and throws a party. Kill the fattened calf. Everybody loves that part of the story. You know what often gets overlooked? The older son, who's representative of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is actually telling the story to because they're complaining that Jesus is sitting with sinners and tax collectors instead of celebrating the fact that people are coming to see and know him. And this older son refuses to go into the party, misses out on the celebration. You know why? 
I was always here. I was doing everything right. I followed all your commands. I did it all. You know what you've done for me, Dad? You never threw me a party. You never killed any calf for me. Totally missing the fact that he had every reason to be grateful because his father's blessing had always been his. He was as guilty for stomping on that blessing as the younger brother was, and yet he wouldn't repent. And he hated as a result of it. He despised as a result of it. And so did the scribes and the Pharisees. Good works that aren't motivated by a true love of God, a love for His people, and a love for the lost who don't yet know that they are God's people. They're not good enough. And Jesus adds, He's like, hey, hey, I, I know that you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Uh, Nicolaitans. I, know that you, I, I know that you despise that. I, I hate it too. And I think this is a great balance. I think it's a great, great opportunity for us to recognize that love, oh man, we talk about love in our culture. Oh man, love, just love. Don't hate love, love, love. Which means if you tell somebody they're in sin, you're not loving. Which says that if I stand opposed to something or if I despise something, it's not loving. And that's absolutely foolishness. Every parent in the room, every parent that loves their children will hate the thing that seeks to destroy their child. Uh, it's, it's, there's a reason why when we see, uh, uh, and I, I read this story a, a few years back about a, about a family who forgave, who went to a, a, a prison and a hearing to forgive the drunk driver that killed their child. There's a reason that's such an astonishing thing in this world. You destroyed my child. I have the right to hate you. I have the right to be opposed to you. I have the right to stand against you. To extend forgiveness is a shocking thing. This, the world gets this. The world understands it. But because they love their sin, they love their own stuff more. But Jesus actually commends them for this. This isn't, a, this isn't a complaint against them. You, you hate what I hate. The problem is you don't love what I love. This is where love becomes a problem, or hate becomes the, the problem. Love that does not produce hate against evil and the destructive forces of this world, it's not really love. If God didn't love the world he created, then he wouldn't be angry that sin and death entered it. He wouldn't be angry and standing in wrath, willful opposition against what's destroying it. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't be angry at the thing that's destroying us. But he also wouldn't have sent his son to die in our place and for our sins. See, love that does not produce some sort of hate is not love, but love that does not produce hate that's tempered also by that same love and just produces hate. That's not really love either. Well, I love you, so I hate all this stuff about you. That's, the, the point is, the point, the point is, uh, don't go out hating on everyone. Go, don't, don't go out 
hating on everything and everyone that doesn't agree with you. But the, but the point is that it's right to hate the things that the Lord hates as long as that hate is tempered by the love of God, the love of His people, and the love of the lost. So Jesus' complaint against this church is serious. So He calls the church. Remember from where you have fallen. You used to be known for your love for all the saints. It's one, of the, it's one of the things you used to express in every way. What happened? And, and here's the question. How do we get back to, how, how do we even consider that? Like, how do we remember the way we used to love, right? How, how do we even think about getting back without having to do the very next thing he calls us to is to Repent. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did before. Well, how in the world do we get? Well, there's got to be a change of mind. There's got to be something deep within us that changes that we recognize. I can't just affirm and accept every sinful thing in every person's life. I can't just turn around and ignore that there's things destroying the people I love. I've got to say something. I've got to love these people enough to say the true thing. But I've got to love them by standing with them and walking with them through it. I've got to point them to Jesus. I've got to show the world that Jesus is the solution to their problem. They want happiness. They're seeking it. Where are they going to find it? You know what's shocking? Jesus didn't tell them, go fix their government. He didn't tell them, go, go, go fix the problems in their society. Just go tell people how stupid it is to worship idols. Go tell people there's a better way to spend their money. Go tell people that there's a better way to make society function. If you'll just obey his commands, you'll be a happy person. He told them to remember what they used to be and get back to doing it. You know why there was a riot in Ephesus because the finances of that city were so affected? It wasn't because they got together and decided that this is the right political thing to do or the right economic strategy that's going to bring happiness to our city. They were faithful witnesses in their city. You want our city to change. You want your neighborhood to love Jesus. You want your neighborhood to know Jesus. You want your family to chase and pursue after Jesus alongside you. When you call them to repentance, don't just call them to the commands of Scripture. Call them to the one who actually saves them. Point them to the one who's actually loved them enough to die in their place and for their sin. Call them to the one who defeated death and overcame. Call them to good doctrine. That's not just a doctrine of works and a doctrine of knowledge, but a doctrine of those things and a doctrine of love. How do we do that? Return to our first love. Think on Jesus. It's so easy to forget him. So easy to look past him, right? Like, oh man, I've just got to get this job done. I've just got this work to do. I've just got these things that are happening. I've got these people who are hard to get along with. I've got this stuff in my life that's hard to bear. I've got these things that are happening. It's so easy to take our eyes off of the one that loved us so completely. This is how you know what love is. This is how you understand and can see love made tangible. Jesus laid down his life for us. It's active. It's not some empty word, I love you. No, he showed you. 
It's beneficial. He didn't just love you in a way that makes you feel comfortable and warm and ooey-gooey inside. It's to your good. It's not passive in any way. It is absolutely proactive. He didn't wait to love you when you deserved it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved you when you were unlovable. He loved you when you were filthy and dirty and detestable. He loved you because he knew who you were and who you would be because of who he is. He loves you. He loved you. So so it's active, it's beneficial, it's proactive, it's pursuant, right? It's after you. And it's unconditionally given to you. You didn't deserve it, you couldn't earn it. But it's absolutely conditioned upon his nature. He loves because of who he is, not because of who you are. This is how you know love. So we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. If we have goods and we don't share them, if we don't give them to our brothers and sisters in need, that becomes the motive. His love becomes the motive for all that we do. That's how we get back to it. That's how we return to it. Hating what he hates is not sufficient. Being a people who can stand up and tell you all the things in the world that we're against is not sufficient. Doing what he does isn't enough. Believing what he teaches isn't enough if it's separated from the love of Christ. If it's not his love compelling us, motivating us, moving us then all it is is more self-exaltation and more self-righteousness that's empty works that he'll say to you, woe to you, hypocrites. You did this, but you really should have ensured you didn't overlook this. So Jesus calls us to remember, to repent, return to that first love. And his commitment to the church is twofold. If you don't do these things, I will remove your lampstand. It's interesting to me that a church like Ephesus is about to hear this warning. It it and Laodicea are the only two churches that actually get threatened with destruction. None of the other churches. Now, there's people in the churches that are going to be judged, but not a whole church, only Laodicea, which we all think, oh, man, there's a terrible church. Ephesus was a model church in many ways. He says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You will no longer be a church. I will not be present with you. Your witness will be gone. That's his commitment to this church. That's his commitment to the truth that he's come to reveal. That's a commitment to his love being in his people. If you don't conquer, if you don't conquer, I will remove your lampstand. But if you, do, if you do conquer, if you do overcome, there is a reward for conquering. And I told you this was going to come back into play. These letters are not some aside that we should just pull out of the, letter, uh, of the book of Revelation. They're rooted deeply in the first vision. I am the one holding the stars and I am the one walking among the lampstands. Just as John saw it, I am that one, Jesus says. And I am the one, and he points all the way to the end of, a, uh, of Revelation. He says, I'm the one that can grant you to eat from the tree of life. I am the one who can bring you in to blessing. You see it? 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's mention of Revelation 21.7 and Revelation 22.14. The one who conquers gets to eat from the tree of life. He's not calling them to conquer everybody else. He's not calling them to go out and be, to, to, to be um, crusaders in his name, conquering and exercising and forcing into domination. He's calling them to conquer their own sin and overcome their own sin. Oh, but you know, it's really actually easier just to see your sins than deal with mine. It's, easy, it's, a, it's a whole lot easier for us to stand here and talk about how sinful the world is and judge them for all their junk while we ignore our own. It's a whole lot easier for us to point at other churches and show what's wrong with them. He didn't call us to conquer them. He called us to conquer the junk that we've got. Overcome the junk that we've got. And it starts by trusting Him. It starts by listening to Him. It starts by hearing what He has to say to us. Remembering what He's called us to be. Repenting of sin that's evident in our life and returning to the love that, has all, uh, that, that should be our first love. What would Jesus say about us? I mean, let's... An honest evaluation. I, I would just encourage you, even as you sit in community groups this week and have discussion, what would Jesus say about this church? Are we a bunch of doctrinal meatheads that just puff up our chests and like to use big words? That got what we call good doctrine, but doesn't act in love towards one another? towards other body of believers, other denominational perspectives. That hates what Jesus hates, but doesn't love what he loves. Would he find good works among us? Would he be able to point to our, our patient endurance, our toil, our standing, our enduring? What would his complaint about us be? I got, I got to say, I, I want to be Smyrna. <laughs> Who doesn't get a complaint? But Smyrna had a hard go. See that next week. Let me ask you a question because I think this, the, the reality of if, if, if what, what there is to say about the church starts with what he would say about you. What would he say about you? Are you all about love and nothing about doctrine? Are you all about doctrine but not about love? What would he say if he sent you a letter? Let's pray.